0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode has been brought to you by Sake Man, a group of sake superheroes bringing sake to the world. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and 3, we're celebrating Mardi Gras with an ode to the king cake, the most delicious custom of carnival season.
1: This is kind of like a terrible comparison, but it's kind of like a braided New Orleans babka,
0: if you really think about the actual technique of it. Do you know why they put a baby in the cake yet?
2: You better be careful where you get that cake because your friends and coworkers
0: in New Orleans are going to have an opinion about it. Tune in to Meet in Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Welcome inside Joya's kitchen. Podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Holken, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome cookbook author, food stylist, and professional recipe developer, Susan Spungen. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Susan about the secrets to being a great host, her new cookbook, Open Kitchen. And we'll hear Susan's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Made your plans to join us at the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience? March 13th to 15th, 2020. Check out what's happening on sbce.events. It's three plus days of unique, only in Santa Barbara events, events including cooking demonstrations, wine tastings, culinary talks, workshops and classes, farm tours, and guided farmer markets visits, as well as special meals from top chefs like Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger, Ludo Lefebvre, and Chris Bianco, and dinners at Santa Barbara's hottest dining spots like The Lark and BBG. You'll even have the chance to attend a live Inside Julia's Kitchen taping. Don't miss it, as I'd love to see you there. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Now, Julia was a big proponent of home cooking, and home cooking very often extends to entertaining at home. And Julia was by nature a very social person. To her, it was always the more the merrier. But when you cook for others, especially if others mean people who don't routinely see you in your pajamas, you're also playing host, two jobs that require practice, skill, and confidence. Certainly food food world professionals have experience that can translate into how to entertain at home with a plum. Someone who embodies this description and shares Julia's enthusiasm for entertaining is cookbook author, food stylist, and professional recipe developer Susan Spungen. In addition to having earned her stripes as a food editor for more than a decade at Martha Stewart Living, she's worked as a culinary consultant on movies, most notably on Nora Efron's Julie and Julia for which Meryl Streep was Oscar-nominated and won a Golden Globe for playing Julia. Dubbed last year by the New York Times as the Babe Ruth of Cookies, the multi-talented Susan joins us today to share her wisdom on how to make a success of entertaining at home and to talk about her new cookbook, Open Kitchen, Inspired Meals for Casual Gatherings. Welcome to the podcast, Susan.
2: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: We're excited to have you on. So let's start with sort of your are you're, you're multiple monikers and you you dub yourself a professional recipe developer you're also a food stylist and i think a lot of our listeners are not necessarily food world professionals just food world interested and mm-hmm. followers and foodies but they might only have a vague idea of those jobs so can you kind of con- define those two jobs and when and if do they ever meet up or join together
2: Sure. Well, um, you know, actually, Britain has a better term for what I do, which is just called food writer. But <laughs> in the US, people would be confused by that because they might think you're a restaurant reviewer, you only write. So I do a lot of different things. Um, as you said, I do work as a food stylist. In, and, you know, I worked as an actual, you know, edit, content editor type of editor, but also a words editor when I was at Martha Stewart Living. Um, I develop, I continue to, to develop recipes both for, uh, various clients. Well, it used to be a lot more magazine clients. There's less of that now because of, you know, what's happening in publishing, but, um, and certainly for my own, uh, magazines and yeah, I mean, I, I have my own books and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, they, they come together because I'm one brain, I'm one person and all, these are all just different expressions of, kind of my food philosophy and know-how, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, So I kind of can move in between all of those different sort of disciplines. Like to me, they're all kind of rooted in the same place. And that may not be true for everyone. And I'm a, a little bit unique in that way that I do everything.
1: Well, yeah, I was going to say, I think the the one that's maybe one title that's more vague to a lot of people who haven't worked in food particularly or particularly in publishing is the food stylist mm-hmm. because a lot of food writers are not food stylists or, or don't do theirs. So part of your talent is that in theory you could do your own. So describe a little bit more what a food stylist job
2: is. Yeah, um, it's true, although I think that Instagram has created more people who do both um, because that's really? part of, you know, if someone is uh, has a big Instagram account, Tend, they tend to do their own styling but that's very different than doing styling professionally like for a client where the food actually might not be your own food um, I'm lucky enough to often have st- gotten to style my own recipes like for instance if I uh, did a, um, some contributing editor type recipes for a particular magazine they might often ha- hire me as the stylist but they're still two separate jobs and um, so a food stylist, uh, obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, because like I guess it isn't obvious. A lot of people think it's about pouring, you know, motor oil on pancakes and shellac on <laughs> turkeys. And it's definitely uh, not that. It can there, there can be some fakery at certain levels and in certain kinds of, of jobs, um, which are going to be mostly, like, very commercial-type jobs. But for the most part, at least what I do is more or less just cooking the food maybe in a more sort of careful way so that it looks beautiful and stays nice longer on camera. Like, for instance, to give you an example, I would never um, take a roast out of the oven and immediately slice it up, uh, even even after 10 minutes of resting, because that would start to crust and dry very quickly. So you just learn different ways of Um, kind of uh, manipulating the food uh, more through timing than anything else uh, to make it look beautiful on camera for as long as possible. And uh, honestly, so much of it is about Everything being that word that everyone hates moist. <laughs> there is nothing worse than dry looking food, right? Or wilted. So it's really about keeping everything looking very vibrant and fresh. But you know then there's movie styling, there's commercial styling, there's styling for a product. All of those have their unique um, challenges.
1: Well, and I think what I was thinking about while you were explaining that is there's a couple of things that tie really neatly and aren't necessarily, I'm not sure every food stylist is really into entertaining, maybe, Mm -hmm. but there's definitely a skill set relationship because a lot of it is planning and timing, right? To get all the effects that you want, which is a big part of entertaining.
2: Absolutely. It totally is. And for me, um, that's a lot of what I kind of put into the book was that all that expertise that I have about... Um, how to plan ahead, how to um, you know make things look as good as they can look, and t- at the last minute, which happens to correspond to tasting good too, because things are fresh, they're not overcooked, they're the herbs are green when they should be green, and uh, you know th- things are juicy when they should be juicy. Uh, all of that translates to the real world of cooking, and certainly for entertaining and you know cooking for guests.
1: Yeah, I always think that's amazing when you watch cooking competition shows on television, you can also often visually tell whether someone's doing a good job. It just reflects on camera that it's going to, you know, it's not always that it looks good, it tastes good, but you can kind of tell. Do you get that feeling too when you watch? I don't know if you watch
2: That, that. you can tell if what? That it's going to taste
1: good or Uh, that they've done a good job with the food by how it's kind of presenting. Absolutely.
2: I mean, you know, to use a pretty tired cliche, we do eat with our eyes. So when something looks good to us visually, we want to eat it. So that's our job as a food stylist is to just make it look as good as possible. And the trend over the last many years, you know, some people say since our Martha days, when we kind of introduced a much looser uh, kind of way of styling food, so it looked more real and less artificial, not all the spaghetti ends tucked in and all of that. Um, you know, it was sort of like just present the food like you would see it in real life with a lot less artifice. That was something that we really uh, embraced at Martha Stewart Living in the early days. And that has absolutely taken off as that's you know what you see today things are you know messy and crumbs and half eaten and looks great and it's much different than if you look at some really old issues of say gourmet or food and wine from the 80s the 90s you're going to see things feeling very tight artificially lit artificially you know arranged and ribbons and flowers and weird things around the food i mean that's how it looked back then
1: Yes, you might get an orchid in your
2: yeah. A lot of ribbons, which was like a weird, um, a weird convention that they used. uh, I'd say in like maybe the eight, the late eighties, there was always a ribbon on set, like all these things to kind of distract you from the food in a weird way. Where now it's like all about like really getting into the food, you know?
1: Yeah, although you would never see like a messy counter with a bunch of papers in it in the background in Martha Stewart.
2: Uh, no, probably not. (laughs) Well, even, even there, like the look definitely evolved over the years. Like when I look back to some of the early issues that at the time people said, wow, this is like really different. Um, I was like, oh boy, you know, it looks so dated, but that's what happens. Things change and you get used to new ways of looking at things.
1: So catch us up to the present, yep. and we're well. in the second half, we'll talk about your new book, but I just sure. want to talk to you just sort of more generally from all these experiences you had as a stylist and food editor, a mm-hmm. food writer with Martha on mm-hmm. movies. Mm-hmm. What what is what, How would you describe the philosophy that you do take to cooking and entertaining at home?
2: Uh, well, you know, I try to keep it simple as much as possible. I try not to take on more than I can comfortably do, even though I, I do because I really want to you know, I I like to, I, I often do break that rule, but I try to keep it simple. I think about like really nourishing my, my guests. I want them to feel good about eating with me and I want them to also feel good after. I don't like to overdo it on rich food. Um, even though I'm, a dessert fan, but I feel like people can take those or leave them to their Mm. discretion. Uh, I definitely want to sit down with them, which, you know, that's part of my philosophy of doing things ahead of time so that I can enjoy the party. Um, and also, you know, if it's a lot of people, I, I hire someone to help me clean up and do the dishes.
1: (laughs) That is a great and very relevant <laughs> tip, but I, and I think that's a great trend. I think amongst people writing books about entertaining mm-hmm. is trying to not steer people away from trying to pretend that they are a restaurant chef, right. which is a very rare skill, and to think more about how to, you know, actually participate, not just be a, 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 the, the person in the kitchen.
2: Right, and also it, it doesn't have to be a solitary uh, venture. I mean you know even if you're single you could invite a friend to come over and cook with you it's much more fun or you know in my case i enlist my husband he has certain things that he does i have things that i do and it all works out really well like his job is always to set out the drinks and the and the you know nibbles before people come over and set the table and i know that he's going to do that which really helps me sort of keep my calm in the kitchen cuz i'm like oh my gosh people are coming and am I'm not quite done. And I like to have things like most of it done before people come over. Cause that, that's how that's like my kind of mental deadline is get it all done before the first person walks in the door. It's like, there are certain things and we'll, we'll get into more of that later um, that you can do while people are there. Those sort of last minute preparations, but I like to have the big stuff, you know, done, cleaned up, put away. And
1: what do you do? Because because I, I think for someone who is naturally, even if you're not like super into cooking or you don't have time to do it that often, if you're a naturally organized person, it helps. Oh yeah. What? what and clearly, I, I can't imagine you're not for what, what your career has been. But do you ever have conversations either with friends or, who fans who you know want to do this but are like, oh, I just can't plan ahead? Or how do you help people like that?
2: Well, I mean, not everything has to be done or planned ahead. There are recipes in this book and in any book that are great kind of, Oh my gosh, I want to be spontaneous and have people over like right now. And there's a lot you can do like that. Um, But you still have to plan ahead in that. You're going to think about what are you going to make? You have to go to the store. So I find all of that much easier to do by planning ahead. Um, You know, the notes app on my iPhone has changed my life because I make, always, I I make a lot of my list there now. And then, you know, I go to the store, I haven't forgotten my list at home or anything like that. And you can sort of make notes while you're thinking of it. So I find that a really helpful way to get ahead um, or make plan ahead. Uh, As far as people who say they they can't, uh, well, they'll just have to come into my house instead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think
1: that that's maybe you can also, you know, yeah, get help or get people into the act. I mean, I think... You know, I think people underestimate how when they invite people over that if people get there and you say, can you help with this or would you right. do that, that that's engagement. It's not like imposing and most people oh, don't no. mind or enjoy it.
2: Yeah. The, you can do that, but I ten, that tends to get a little bit chaotic. And I, I find most people offer to help because they s- see that you're, quote unquote, in the weeds. Um, mm. And so I prefer to not have people help too much. I mean, if, if they get there early and there's something I need help with, sure, I'll, I will ask them. But honestly, I prefer to just kind of move on to the wine and the chat. And that that's more fun, I think, for everyone. Um, even though, you know, I, I definitely will ask for help if I need it. But but my goal is to kind of not ask people to do too much.
1: And, and I take it that that's coming from a place of why you like to entertain, which is like you, you like to gather people to enjoy themselves. Absolutely.
2: I really am like very social. I really enjoy being with people. So that's the whole point of doing this, I think. Um, and you know, like when I have a party, I I don't want it to end. I know some people say like, well, sometimes maybe you're like, okay, time to go home. But really, I mean, I wouldn't do it if I didn't, enjoy it as an opportunity to, uh, get people together. I love kind of mixing up different friends that haven't met before. Um, you know, I think it's like something everyone remembers, like forever. They've, a lot of times they've made new friends at my house. They never would have met otherwise. Um, and I just, you know, really enjoy it as a way of catching up with, you know, people that I want to spend time with.
1: No, and I think that was very much a part of Julia's philosophy. She yeah. just so enjoyed being with other people, right. connecting other people, and yeah. what came out of it, and really saw food as this vehicle yeah. to enable
2: that. Absolutely. In fact, I have in my uh, my hostess book, I used a, a Julia quote in the beginning. I don't know if I'm going to quote it word for word, and it, it's on its own page. And it says... Um, Some people don't understand why you would spend two hours of work on two minutes enjoyment. But if cooking is evanescent, then so is the ballet, (laughs) which is such a Julia thing to say. But I really, really agree with that philosophy.
1: (laughs) Kindred spirits, Yeah. So since we're on Inside Julia's Kitchen, we have to ask you about being the food stylist and culinary consultant on Julia and Julia. What was that like?
2: Well, um, I could write another book about that. <laughs> Please do. do. Um, no, well, I don't know if I will, but, you know, here's the thing. I think I was the only person on that set who had been to Julia's house in Cambridge and who had actually, maybe one other person might have met her, but I was the only person that actually was in Cambridge. Um, and, you know, Meryl really really embodied Julia and she stayed in character pretty much all most of the time. And so it was really funny like even when I talk think back to that movie and the experience I I refer to Meryl Streep as Julia because she really was Julia. So it was really amazing to kind of watch that and be a part of it. And plus just to be part of the sort of family atmosphere that Nora created for the movie. It was the first movie I worked on, so I didn't really have anything to compare it to, but I worked on several since, and it was a very uh, kind of special atmosphere. Nora, like, she's, you know, brought in... So much food, like, you know, like if we were working late at night, she'd order sandwiches from Katz's or, uh, from her favorite ice cream place in Ohio and, you know, and, and we'd have food trucks pull up outside. Like she just wanted everybody, I mean, we all did gain weight, but, um, she wanted everyone to just enjoy food. And, you know, what we didn't know when we were making the movie is that Nora Ephron was ill and, uh you know, she knew that and no one else knew that. So looking back afterwards, it made it an even more um, kind of special experience to have shared that with her. And she really did think of it as our movie, not her movie.
1: Well, and I think you're describing an read this about Nora Ephron too about the food was this vehicle to engender that kind of family atmosphere and to I mean the movies work I know this from my own experience when everything is clicking there is not one person who makes a movie and if you have four things not clicking you will not have a good movie it seems like that's what Nora understood and was trying to foster
2: yeah I, I would say in retrospect that that's true and you know you It is a little hard to tell sometimes when you're on a movie. It's like, is this going to be a good movie? You can't. You're like, is it? You know, you don't really know because it's still the that final edit and the music. But you kind of have a feeling like you're thinking, how could this not be a good movie? When you know, and that's I think how we felt on on Julie and Julia. Uh, You know, the ones that weren't as good. I think you sort of thought, I'm not so sure about the script or. Is this hokey or, you know, something like that? You just weren't sure when you were on set. Um, but with this, yeah, I think everybody really felt like this is going to be a really good movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think the vibe, I mean, it's, it, it sounds sort of, like you said, cliched or even silly to say that the vibe matters. But it really does because that's yeah. where movie magic comes from, yeah. is the vibe of all these things jelling yeah. together. I agree. And so, in this case, right, a movie that is very much about people making food, the food matters.
2: Oh yeah, it de- it definitely mattered, um, and people certainly enjoyed. The food that we also cooked on set, but like I said, there was all this other food too. <laughs> it was just well. Like, and I liked you said food. one of the.
1: I think I read that one of the hardest things you did was to actually make a meal that looked bad because True. Julie was was making a mistake.
2: True. Yes, I was. Yeah, well, it, it is. It's hard, you know, because like uh, you know, with film, they want to everything has to be obviously dramatized. And like, for instance, when the first time she makes the Buff Bourguignon, uh, Amy Adams character, uh, Julie Powell, um, you know, she has to pour the wine in to deglaze the pan and, um, you know, Nora, it was kind of disappointing sizzle and Nora was like, wait a minute, I remember it being much more dramatic than that. And then the special effects guy had to get involved and we had to make a big, giant puff of steam, which I don't know if you remember that part of the movie, but it's not the way it it actually is. You know, when you're cooking, you're like, wow, that's dramatic. But then you look at it on film <laughs> and it's kind of just this little puff of steam and a little short sizzle. So we had to like really amp that up. And... um trying to think of some other uh, examples of wait what was the thing that you said that I yeah well I, and sorry? also
1: making it you you right you didn't you have to make a book bargain yarn two that looked terrible? oh yeah
2: yeah so so that was uh you know there were, it was tough because you know the schedules on movies are like generally you start at 9 a.m. or 7 a.m. probably on Monday. And because of, like, actors' turnaround times and shooting late every day, by the time you get to Friday, you're usually starting at 12 or 1 or something like that. So, you know, because of the crazy schedule, sometimes I had to... Uh, and in this case, in particular, I had to go home and cook a boeuf bourguignon at home. Uh, and, you know, my idea was to let it sit overnight. In this case, it was supposed to be congealed. There was another one that was supposed to be burnt when Ju- Judith Jones was supposed to be coming for dinner, I think. And uh, the congealed one, I can't remember now which scene that was. But so I try, I cooked it at home and I... Left it over. I thought, well, I'll just leave it overnight on my stove, and it will be congealed in the morning, and I'll just bring it back to, with me to set. And you know, I actually cooked it in the flame Le Creuset that it was going to be shown in, and uh, the classic orange color. And I, I, my big mistake was putting the lid on uh, the Le Creuset at night because in the morning, guess what? It was still warm. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because a Le Creuset is such an effective <laughs> vehicle for, for braising a stew and it keeps it warm for a really long time. So that's something to remember when you're serving, why you need a Le Creuset or a Stab, nice Dutch oven keeps things hot a really long time. So I had to fudge it a little to try to get it to look worse. But it, it was hard. It's my was my point with that one.
1: Okay. Well, <laughs> we're going to take a break and we'll be back to talk to Susan about our new book, Open Kitchen. Stay with us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sake Man. What is Sake Man? Sake men are judo athletes wearing lucha libre inspired masks that act as sake heroes. This team of athletes moonlight as sake educational professionals spreading sake to the world. Learn more about their mission and their favorite sakes at Sake to the world. That's Sake to the World.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking to author food stylist and recipe developer Susan Spungin about her new book, Open Kitchen Inspired Meal for Casual Gatherings. So Susan, we, we talked about this a little bit in the first half about your philosophy on entertaining and particularly that you've infused in this book. So tell us what your idea of get ahead cooking that grounds the book really is.
2: Yeah, so I mean, when I was when I'm cook, well, always when I'm cooking, I'm thinking how can I get ahead, and I'm not into like just make-ahead food. Like that's not what this book is about. It's much more than making ahead because that that can be a little limiting. That's gonna kind of limit you to um, kind of. A slow cooker casseroles you know what i mean or yeah a slow cooker uh it doesn't it's it this is more about what are like like i mentioned before what are all the little things you can do to um get ahead so whether that's chopping the herb chopping the onions making your vinaigrette you know all the different parts of a recipe that you can do to get ahead so that you are leaving as little work as possible for that sort of last hour of of cooking. So, in each recipe I actually list all the all the tips for if you want to, you know, if you're really an organized person and a planner, the things you could do 3 days ahead, 2 days ahead, 1 day ahead, an hour ahead, and what you should keep for the last minute. Um, because I think the mistake sometimes that people make is they're so anxious to plan ahead that they do too much ahead of time and things are, you know, the green beans are brown and, uh, you know, things are kind of wilted looking. So, you know, I, I, I like to tell people what, what to not do ahead of time as well.
1: No, I think that's a great guide. And especially for people who aren't as experienced, but are gung ho those, I mean, really you learn those tips, you know, as you have through experience. Right and mistakes, basically.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, and I have I have that in spades. But um, and these things, these tips, they they make the food um, both look and taste its absolute best when you're serving it.
1: Yeah, no, I think I was, in reviewing the book, I kept thinking about whenever my wife and I were debating about, oh, we're going to host something and what are we going to serve? And I come up with more creative ideas. And my wife is always the one who says, that won't keep ahead. I don't want to be in the kitchen
2: doing that. Right, right. Well, you know, I started to realize that that guides, uh, you know, my decisions when I'm cooking for other people and a lot of other people's too. So instead of having to search through a book for something that is suitable Uh, you know, I tried to use that ethos throughout this book. So there's, you know, I mean, there are things that are easier that can be done last minute because let's face it, not everybody is a planner, but by and large, the recipes in this book will work for you if you want to entertain.
1: Well, let's talk about, I think the other great thing about this book is you have tons of recipes in this book. You are not shortchanging anyone as well as (laughs) hundreds, maybe a thousand gorgeous photos.
2: Well, not a thousand. (laughs) There's a, well, there's, I think there's 125 maybe and change uh, recipes. Um, But yeah, the book did come out really kind of thick and big. I don't know exactly why, but I love the heft of it. Um, And it, it is really pretty packed. And I actually, I had, I think I had like 150 in some recipes and I had to cut back. So I always feel you, you have a better product when you edit out the stuff that isn't as strong. So I feel like what, what we ended up with were, you know, 125 really, really solid recipes. Um and I'm sorry. What was the sec? The part? Of well, your- no. I was going
1: to say it was good. It, you know, really feels like it's good value. The, uh, one yeah, of the things I sure. wanted to ask you mm-hmm. was, I, I liked what you said, but I wanted to get you to kind of share that one of the things you recommend, in in addition to your get ahead cooking philosophy mm-hmm. and the planning and the tips you give, mm-hmm. is adding a wow factor <laughs> to you know one dish for your guests, which I, I think is great advice. But I also think it's how you present it is not. It's not necessarily making, you know, a la minute soufflés for everyone. So could you give us some example, your wow factor example?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing, to you know, to think about with a wow factor is, like, you only need one. Like, sometimes, like you're saying, people can overdo it. And they make, trying to make all these things have a wow factor when you only really need one. That's what people are going to remember. And, you know, they kind of cancel each other out if you do too many to mm. try try for too many wow's. Um so, you know, whether that's your centerpiece as I put it in my book and I have fish, chicken, meat and vegetarian centerpieces, that can be the place for your wow. But uh you know, I was thinking about like I mean dessert is is a great place to do a wow factor and I have a lot of wow desserts in the book, um, like the chocolate beet cake, for instance, or uh, the uh, Scandinavian Brita cake. I mean, they're just so beautiful. And the thing about a dessert is that you can have it beautifully displayed on the counter when people walk in. So they can be kind of anticipating throughout the whole meal. They see it right away and they'll be anticipating it throughout the meal. So I think that's a nice way to go. And you could also just do it with your beautiful drink spread. And um, you can make a gorgeous black and white cheese board with my charcoal crackers and beautiful ash covered cheeses. I mean, you have to think about the visuals and then I have like a a pickled cherries with sumac and burrata, which is also absolutely gorgeous thing to serve as soon as cherries are in season. Um, I have a winter grand That is a major wow. And if anyone wants to look on my website, there's a video of me serving that to actual, making it and serving it to guests um, last you, well, year. I don't,
1: I, since this is radioed, it's often, you just describe what it is and what it looks like.
2: Yeah. So a grand is, is that what you're asking about? The grand yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So a grand is a very classic, uh, you know, French dish great for entertaining. Usually it's a summer thing and cold. Uh, it's usually involves one or two kinds of seafood, a bunch of blanched vegetables, and a big bowl of homemade um, aioli, which is garlic mayonnaise. So in this version, I thought it would be kind of fun to make it into a winter thing. Um, so I have like a whole roasted cauliflower and, you know, lobsters that I suggest buying from the store or shrimp, either one, a big piece of baked salmon, um, and then a lot of like kind of room temperature roasted vegetables. So it's all just kind of a heartier, warmer kind of thing than the summer version. And also, uh, I do a a black garlic and roasted garlic aioli, because for me, sometimes raw garlic is a little harsh. And this aioli, it is absolutely delicious and that's the whole point of this dish is to just dip and then i serve this with some hot bread and then the hot semolina potatoes from the book and just to add some like warmth to it but also the point is like you can serve room temperature food it doesn't everything doesn't have to be hot pick one or two things that can be hot to kind of complement the room temperature stuff, and I have to say, people like went crazy the way I wanted them to at this dinner where I served this, because you know people just start eating with their hands, and I, I just love that. It was a it was a very uh, uh, visceral experience. <laughs> so
1: I, actually, I meant to ask you this: Do you when you entertain, do you usually serve buffet or family style rather than like plate it? Uh,
2: usually, yes. I mean, I don't think people at home really plate dinners too often I usually like to set the food out and let people take what they want um, or in this case, when I served the grand aioli, I put it all on the table. So it was really about reaching and kind of eating, as, uh, you know, in li- in a little increments because it was kind of a, it's a nibbling kind of meal rather than uh, a fill up your plate and eat it all kind of meal. But yeah, generally speaking, I set the food out. Sometimes, you know, my my kitchen ha- is uh, in my house in East Hampton, which is where I mostly entertain. Um, has the stove top. Is on a peninsula, so mm-hmm. rather than uh, it's not an it's not an island, and the, on the other side is my uh, table. So a lot of times, I will if I have something warm, I'll just put it right on the stove when you can reach over it that becomes almost like a a warm buffet i can keep something on a low flame there and people can get up and get more if they want or i just set everything out i like to put things on the table if there's room but there isn't often room if i only have four people i'll put dishes on either end because our table is about seats eight and uh yeah i like having everything within reach and i just like the more casual vibe sometimes i'll plate a salad though
1: and so i wanted to also ask you about kind of One of the things that I think is great about your book, in addition to the beautiful photos and that it's chock full of really tantalizing recipes, it also has a fair amount of advice in it and Mm -hmm. guidance as we've been talking about. And so I wanted to ask you about your other tips for being a successful host, because I feel like I remember like one of the things you said or that maybe you do is you're usually serving four to eight, maybe 12 people, but Mm -hmm. you're not necessarily a proponent of trying to cook for 50 people at a Super Bowl party?
2: No, not usually, although recently I did have a cookie party uh, over the holidays, Um, so that's a different story. Uh, I had it in between meals, and I had a a big spread of cookies, and I think we had between 50. 50, 60 people, you know, it was really kind of fun. So when it's not cooking per se, I still like to gather large groups, but I'm not going to like just cook single-handedly for that many people. Um, but, uh, yeah, generally. So, so do you want to know what my, my tips are? Is that, is that where we're going? Um, so some of this is going to be repetitive or redundant, but, Plan your menu, make lists, be ready, be relaxed, um, make more than enough, <laughs> and uh, enlist help if you need it, and have a cleanup plan. <laughs> Those are some of my some of my tips. <laughs>
1: Well, I think those are good tips because I think they're actually they they sound when you rattle them off obvious, but I definitely think a lot of people do not have a cleanup plan and plan, <laughs> and then they're just like totally overwhelmed, being like, "What did I do?"
2: Right, and one of the cleanup plans might be just like start with an empty dishwasher. You know, I mean, sometimes people don't even think about that, and the dishwasher is all loaded up from cooking or the day or the week or whatever. And, you know, you go to, to uh, do the dishes and the dishwasher is full if you have a dishwasher. Uh, so, you know, that's part of my philosophy of getting ahead is that you've, you're kind of starting with a clean kitchen, an empty dishwasher, and you're ready to go because maybe you've done the heavy lifting the day before or two days before. And it's kind of a distant memory, <laughs>
1: and and let's go back to the people for a second because i'd love to hear more from you about what you think is the ideal number or if you tailor the number to sort of the occasion or the the purpose of why oh
2: yeah i mean I, i love i like having six for dinner i think is a really nice uh size group but sometimes we'll have a family party with you know 12 to 15 um but it's always a bit more casual with family uh like we had a a birthday party for my mother-in-law last summer and it was more like an eat in your lap kind of thing out on the deck and it wasn't as much of a sit down like i'll do more people if it's a situation like that um but when it's like really a dinner party i aim for six or eight but i'm also happy to have four and i'm you know sometimes my husband and i also try to invite a single friend over because i feel like singles don't get uh enough attention and get left out a lot. So sometimes we like lavish our attention on one person. <laughs> Which well, I think
1: th- that's really nice because I think what, what ends up happening is we tend to get ambitious with, oh, we finally have time to do it and we invite too many people and then I don't get to talk to anybody. For yeah, like it's minutes.
2: true. It's true. And so, I, I mean, we've done that a couple of times with, uh, you know, single people that we know and I think it's really nice for them and it's nice for us too because we really get to know them. But more often than not, we have you know, four or six or eight total. Like we don't say, oh, well, we can't get eight people together so we can't have a dinner party. I mean, we'll, we'll have kind of whoever's around, but I think we aim for six to eight.
1: Well, and I also think that's a great tip if you're trying to build up your, your entertaining confidence is mm-hmm. to not feel like that just having one or two people over is not entertaining.
2: Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah. And
1: it's a great, great way to lower the bar and <laughs> lower the stress of, of pulling it yeah, off. Yeah. And it is
2: the fewer people you have, the easier it is, obviously. Um, but there's not a big difference between, let's say, having one or two people over, If you know, just four. It's easy. It's very easy to have just two people over if you're two people. And, you know, six, it's a little bit more. Eight starts to get harder. So, you know, the more people you have, the you know, the more glasses, the more dishes, the more cleanup, etc. And then, you know, uh, Thanksgiving, I should say, is another opportunity when we have more people, usually 12 to 14. Um, and I definitely get help for that because the last thing I want to do is be cleaning up, like, you know, hardened turkey grease. Like three hours later. So I. Well, always... I also
1: think that's a great point. Is that Thanksgiving is not normal entertaining. Right. That is a, right. Right. And I think people get in the, they they survive Thanksgiving and they do it and they think, oh, I'm not doing that again yeah. until next year. Yeah. But they confuse that with like standard entertainment.
2: True. True. And it doesn't. It's definitely. It's bigger. It's more. I mean, yes, you can ask people to bring dishes, but it's still a lot. Uh, you know, just just because like a turkey's on. Un- Wieldy for one thing it's big you know you have to, it's like a lot to handle just the turkey even if you had people bring all the side dishes if you just are cooking the turkey uh you know it, it's you know for some people that that's a fairly heavy lift not you know no pun intended it really is it's not not the easiest thing especially if they haven't done it before so yeah it can be so much easier than that you can make there's so many like completely make-ahead dishes that are especially winter dishes in the book, like uh, an asabuco ragu that you can just, the all only thing you have to do at the last minute is make a salad and cook pasta and, you know, toss it with the ragu, which you could have made three days ahead and left in the fridge or a month ahead and put in the freezer. Um, that's like a perfect example of how easy it can be. Um and I, I aim for, in the winter, I love to do braises for that reason. They're better ahead, and, you know, it's just it really, really takes the pressure off at the last minute. There you go. And Julia would approve.
1: <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> so what is your go-to dinner party dish? How do you make entertaining more fun and less stressed? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact JuliaChildFoundation.org and let us know When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go
2: very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the
0: kitchen, who is going to see?
1: From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, I'm looking forward to this Susan. What's your dream? <laughs> uh,
2: well, yes, I did have some time to think about this ahead of time, but it's also the one that I often tell. So in, uh, oh, I don't remember the year. It was probably 96 or 97 uh, when when Julia was working on the book and se- and TV series uh, Baking with Julia, which is also when I met Dora Greenspan because she was the author of the book. Um, we, uh, Martha and me and uh, a team went up there to make this spectacular wedding cake and um And it was a two-day shoot. Most of the other ones were one-day shoot, but of course we had to be extra, even though that was not a term back then, uh, and do a you know elaborate wedding cake. So the shooting took two days. So we were there overnight. I think we stayed at the Charles Hotel. And uh, oh yes,
1: my favorite.
2: And Julia and Jeff Drummond uh, made us dinner. Uh, Me and Martha and. I don't remember who else was there and whether Dory was there, but it was a very small, intimate group. And of course it was so super special. I mean, she cooked, I, Julia actually cooked for me. Um, Not just me, but I was there and I can tell you what she made. And it was grilled steak. It was summertime. So we were just outside on the patio and we had grilled steaks and twice baked potatoes with lots of butter. And Mm -hmm. I don't remember what else, probably just a salad and that's just to show you how, how really simple things can be. Um, and I remember she pulled a bottle of red wine out of the cellar, a special one to share with us, but it probably Paul had put it there, and it had gone off, so we had to get a second bottle. But it, it was just a very memorable moment to spend that kind of intimate time with Julia.
1: Well, and how on theme that your Julia moment wasn't Julia, you know, entertaining and true. hosting people to dinner.
2: True, true.
1: And I think that really speaks to what what I've learned from the most accomplished people in the food world is when they do entertain you, they're usually serving you very simple food, True. but is often top quality and perfectly yeah. done.
2: Yeah. And if you have any friends that are chefs, invite them over for dinner and cook for them because they never get invited anywhere. <laughs> Everyone's afraid to cook for them. <laughs>
1: No, well, and poor Julia, yes, people would be ner- <laughs> but nervous But don't be afraid.
2: That- no, I mean, like, like Julia said, I can do my imitation here. Never apologize. You know, you never apologize for anything that you've, you're serving or, or, you know, what you're doing. It's like, you know, just be proud of what you've made and don't say, oh, well, this is overcooked or oh, I made a mistake or I forgot to follow the recipe. Just serve it with pride.
1: I think that's great. Although we, we were just discussing this, though, that, that, that when Julia's advice was to never apologize, it was speaking about your own food. It was not for life in general.
2: Oh, that's true. Yes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes. That's that's definitely something to be clarified. Uh, yeah, for sure.
1: Indeed. She would apologize if she made a mistake. Absolutely.
2: Or a she was a very kind person.
1: Indeed. Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Susan Spungen's new cookbook is Open Kitchen Inspired Meals for Casual Gatherings. It's out March 3rd, 2020 from Avery, a Penguin Random House imprint. It features stunning photographs by gentlemen hires and a multitude, as we discussed, of delicious recipes. Look for it online or ask for it at your favorite local bookseller. To indulge in Susan's world of gorgeous food, she's at Susan Spungen on Twitter and Instagram and at Susan Spungen1 on Facebook. It's S P U N G E N. You can learn more about all her work on susanspungan.com. For all the updates about the Julia Child Foundation, including the upcoming Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, keep up with us on Aunt Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from the French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkheld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. On the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash Network.